charter a course, I will charter a course, if we can just get the country to trust us. Charter a course, southeast, west, and north, and along the way we may find justice. Hello and welcome back to Charter a Course, a podcast created by the David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. My name is Cheryl Milne and I am the Executive Director of the Asper Center. Our podcast focuses on leading constitutional cases and issues, highlighting strategic aspects of constitutional litigation and some of the accomplishments of U of T's faculty and alumni involved in the cases. It is our hope that over the course of this episode, whether you are a law student, a lawyer, or someone looking for an interesting topic to chat about at a cocktail party, that you learn about an aspect of constitutional law and litigation that interests you. I wish to first acknowledge this land from which our podcast emanates. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. Today, this meeting place is still the home to many Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work here. In this episode, we will focus on Section 3 of the Charter, which provides that every citizen of Canada has the right to vote in an election of members of the House of Commons or of a Legislative Assembly, and to be qualified for membership therein. In the latter half of the episode, we will discuss the Asper Center's constitutional challenge in the federal voting age. With our first guest, we will be speaking about the content of the right in Section 3, as well as the history of how more and more people have been included in the franchise, both before the Charter and after. Our first guest is Professor Michael Powell. Mike Powell is an associate professor at the University of Ottawa. He studied law at the JD and doctorate level at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law, where he was a Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation Scholar, as well as earning an LLM from NYU. His research focuses on the law of democracy and elections, spanning the fields of constitutional law, political science, and public policy. Professor Powell has advised all levels of Canadian government on matters related to electoral and constitutional law and has advised election commissions around the world. He has served as a commissioner for the Far North Electoral Boundaries Commission, a campaign finance advisor to the Ministry of the Attorney General in Ontario, and currently serves on the advisory boards of the Indian Law Review and the Electoral Integrity Project. Professor Powell is currently working on a book on the comparative law and politics of election commissions. So welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here. Well, let's start by talking about the history of enfranchisement in Canada, meaning the right to vote. When we're thinking about the history of Canadian constitutionalism, we often talk about how democracy is not actually enshrined in the original Canadian constitution, but implied by the preamble, which said that Canada's constitution would be similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom. When the Charter came along a century later, there was some debate about whether Section 3 simply codified an already existing set of democratic rights or whether it created new rights. Which would you say is a more accurate description? That's a great question, Cheryl. I think that the best answer is that Section 3 was intended to be transformative. And I think there's pretty clear evidence in the text of the Charter itself about that. For example, Section 3, the text itself says every citizen has the right to vote. That is a clear reaction to the kind of unpleasant, not very admirable history in Canada where many groups of citizens were deprived of uh, the right to cast a ballot. There are other textual signals as well. Section 1, the Limitations Clause, 
talks about justified limits in a free and democratic society. So the idea that democracy is not just one value, but it's foundational to Canada is right there in section one. And I think we also have to look at a very contemporary issue, the notwithstanding clause in section 33 of the charter. And so the right to vote, uh, along with some other structural democratic rights and language rights and mobility rights, are exempt, uh, those are all exempt from the application of the notwithstanding clause. Uh, that's not an accident. Uh, it's the fear that governments could misuse the power to restrict the right to vote so as to win an election and then stay in office indefinitely or to cancel elections or something like that. So I think Section 3, read in relation to the rest of the Charter, particular textual signals, really signifies that it was meant to be a break with the past and to be something new. And, and that's not really surprising given uh, the history of Canadian democracy and, and, and the Constitution is having a constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom and democracy sort of underspecified in the Canadian the Constitution Act 1867 because of that British heritage with the unwritten uh, constitution. So 1982 was the time where some of the most significant commitments to ensuring democracy were put into the text. So I think that's transformational rather than simply codifying what had happened in the past. Yeah, and we can see that in the case law, which we're going to be going through and in, in the interpretation of Section 3. But going back to that original constitution in 1867, who really had democratic rights in practice and how did that evolve over time? You know, the short answer is it was uh, male citizens who were born British citizens or naturalized who met the age requirement of 21. There were income requirements, property requirements, but sometimes also more granular requirements around income. But I think the, the other important um, thing to know is that in the initial years of Confederation, uh, there was a patchwork of laws across the country. There was no one federal law that regulated who had the franchise in 1867. It was in fact provincial laws passed by provincial legislatures that applied to determine the franchise for provincial and federal elections. Uh, and it was really only after 1920 that that provincial role ended and we had something like a, a, a national franchise. But what you see in the uh, debates in the provincial legislatures, but also in parliament is many, many members of parliament expressed the view that voting was not a right, but it was a privilege. And it was a privilege that could be denied to groups that were unworthy, or is a privilege that could be denied for reasons that we would today not think to be very legitimate reasons to ground state action, racism, stereotyping, that sort of thing. And so the franchise opens up to males who uh, don't have significant amounts of property, eventually opens up to women after long political protest, okay, an important part in Canadian history. Yes, certainly the suffragettes had a role in Canada, not just in the UK in that regard. Absolutely, and, and a lot of bravery to be recounted there, right? Women risking arrest, being arrested, and being heavily criticized by powerful political leaders of the day, but persevering. But there were other restrictions that lasted for a long time. British Columbia in particular had race-based restrictions against Asians of South Asian or East Asian heritage, and those persisted for a long time. Or in some of the other prairie provinces, there was uh, discriminatory rules against um, individuals of Chinese descent. And then right from pre-Confederation, but then Confederation onwards, Indigenous peoples were either formally or informally deprived 
of the right to cast a vote. Sometimes that was because of property requirements and the Canadian state not recognizing Indigenous title and therefore uh, uh, prospective voters were deemed not to have the requisite amount of property. Other times it was simply based on uh, racism and stereotyping and the parliamentary record is quite clear. One of the most remarkable facts of the year is in British Columbia when it joined Confederation, best estimates are that racialized uh, individuals and Indigenous peoples were a majority or close to a majority at that time, but were deprived of the right to vote by a minority in the new uh, province. So um, religious groups as well, um, who are sometimes deemed too pacifistic during wartime, or sometimes deemed to be, have communist sympathies because they had communal property ownership. So there uh, is a long history that lasts until the 1960s, really, of deprivations, undue deprivations on the right to vote. One way of looking at that is we didn't really have a, a true electoral democracy until the 1960s when the franchise was really uh, much closer to being universal. So even though Section 3 codified the right to vote for all Canadian citizens, and so we're now moving into 1982 where there is that much more broader group of eligible voters, some restrictions still remained even after repatriation in 1982. So in 1988, which was merely 44 years ago, the federal court struck down legislation which restricted people suffering from mental illness from voting, as well as legislation which prevented judges from voting. One of the most significant cases on Section 3 is Sauve v. Canada from 2002, which extended the right to vote to people incarcerated in prisons. What do all of these cases reveal about how we think of the right to vote in Canada, and how did Sauve help to solidify that by recognizing the rights of incarcerated people? Yeah, there's lots to say about Sauve, a really significant uh, case for the right to vote, but also the Charter as a whole. We we discussed some of those restrictions on the right to vote that were pre-Charter. Generally, they were taken out of the statute book by the 1960s. So there were still informal barriers, but fewer explicit statutory barriers to voting. And then the early cases after 1982 were judges on on mental capacity, uh, sweep away some of the remaining restrictions. Among the most controversial ones that was left was incarcerated individuals. And a survey says it's unconstitutional to deprive the incarcerated uh, of the right to cast a ballot. Matters for a lot of it matters for the individuals, obviously, who could now cast a vote. But generally, prisoners were probably one of the more unpopular groups if you polled the general public and asked their views on the incarcerated. They were a classic, discreet, and insular minority, to borrow uh, a term from the U.S. case law. And uh, Sauve closes the door on reasoning by Parliament that a group should be deprived of the right to vote because parliamentarians view them as unworthy. That that is not an acceptable justification. It also stands for the proposition that the courts must apply a stringent standard under Section 3 and the Limitations Clause, the Oaks Analysis in Section 1, because the right to vote is core and fundamental. Some of the earlier, uh, older uh, cases and some of the parliamentary debates suggested actually the courts should be deferential because parliament knows about election law and parliament knows about politics and it should be up to the people to determine who else is a political equal who has a say in voting. The court says that's not the case. It's their job to protect a a fundamental right. Justice Gonche has a very firmly worded dissent, if I could put it that way, arguing that on questions of disputed social and political philosophy, like who should have the vote, 
It should be Parliament that has a say. Chief Justice McLaughlin and her reasons rejects that view because of the core importance of the right to vote. And she also, you know, taking outside of the right to vote context, Section 1 is one of the few cases where the court casts doubt on the pressing and substantial purpose that the government puts forward to try to justify a rights limitation. And, and she says vague and symbolic objectives, which don't really tell you what the government was doing, what the parliament was doing when it passed the law, those aren't sufficient to actually allow the court to do its job and should be looked upon with great skepticism. So um, if prisoners cannot be deprived of the right to vote, uh, despite their unpopularity, despite the fact that they're incarcerated by virtue of having um, been deemed by the courts to have, have violated the law, then it's hard to see any group of adult citizens being deprived of the vote in the future. And I know we'll, we'll talk about its implications for, for age and, uh, and, and younger citizens as well. That's right. You're anticipating my, my questions about that. I know that uh, Justice McLaughlin in that decision talks about age being a modality, and we can talk about that a bit. But I want to bring us up to 2019, which is the Frank in Canada case. The Asper Centre intervened in that case about what, what really comprised the right to vote in terms of looking at its, its definition. It's another landmark case on Section 3 was that was decided by the Supreme Court. It focused on the rights of citizens who have lived outside of Canada for more than five years at the time of an election. We argued that being subject to the law is not a prerequisite for the right to vote which was one of the arguments that were put forward and one of the, the reasonings in the Court of Appeal below, since the Charter says that citizenship and citizenship alone qualifies a person to vote. The Court agreed with that interpretation and also discussed how the right to vote in Section 3 has value beyond its literal meaning alone. So in other cases, the Supreme Court has also said that Section 3 includes the right to effective representation and to meaningful participation in the democratic process even though some argue that it should have only a literal reading. A literal reading would encompass the right to vote itself and no more. So where is the court situated now in 2022 as far as that debate stands in your view? That's a good question that has a lot of layers. I think on the, the most direct part of the question, yes, the court agrees with its previous cases, which say that it's not just the right to put a piece of paper in a ballot box. It must protect some of the background factors and structures that mean we have fair elections. And that makes a lot of sense simply uh, from the point of view of looking at the text, which kind of underspecifies how democracy works. Uh, and so we need there to be uh, more legislation and we need there to be constitutional oversight of that legislation because the constitutional text doesn't take us all the way there. Now, there are other things uh, to say. One of the issues that always comes up in the Section 3 cases is whether there are internal limits to Section 3. Could be age, could be residency, could be status as an incarcerated individual. The government's always tried to argue there are these limits inherent in the analysis of Section 3. You never even get to Section 1. So even if we concede that Section 3, as I think we should, that Section 3 protects the background factors of politics, there are limits inherent in the text, even though it says every citizen. I think Frank is the has been the death of that argument, and the government did abandon it at later stages. So the idea that there are internal limits, I think, has gone away, and we are left with the idea that it, the right to vote protects more than simply the right to put the piece of paper in the ballot box, because otherwise putting the piece of paper in the ballot box would be meaningless unless we had fair procedures for counting the vote, for securing the vote, for translating those votes into seats in the House of Commons, 
and so on. But my view on Frank has always been, it was a pretty straightforward and easy application of Sove if you accept that Sove is the controlling precedent. The dissent in Frank, which would allow parliament to still restrict voting by Canadian citizens who are living abroad, clearly preferred the reasoning of Justice Gontier uh, in the Sove case. But if we accept that the majority in Sove is the controlling precedent, if you can't deprive the incarcerated of the right to cast a ballot, you can't deprive a citizen who happens to be uh, living uh, overseas as well. I mean, it also speaks a lot to what the Section 1 analysis. I mean, when you have a very strong right in Section 3, the court also really, the majority really clearly says that if you're going to limit that really strong and important right, you have to have a very good reason to do that. And so that's the other aspect of of Frank that I think is really significant. Yeah, the government lawyers were in tough on that one because there wasn't really a great articulation of what the reason was for disenfranchising non-resident citizens uh, on the parliamentary record. So the closest they came was to say it's uh, f- it starts after you're abroad for more than five years. That's tied to the maximum amount of time between elections. But the record wasn't clear on that. And it was, I think, hard then for the government to claim there was a benefit to uh, the country as a whole. And it was one of the few cases in which the court really... Um, took the onus on government to have evidence to prove why they wanted to do something, that they really put that onus on them squarely and said, you didn't show us that. Absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, the political expression cases are sometimes bred with the right to vote cases as part of the democratic rights. And court there has been, the BC FIPA case and others have been more, take a more relaxed approach to what evidence is needed at the section one stage to prove that the infringement was justified. Yeah, I'm I'm going to just jump down to another question that we had that kind of relates to that, which is that another debate that often arises in the context of Section 3 is the issue of deference. And so that's related to the Section 1 analysis. And it's always a factor in judicial interpretations of constitutional law, but it has played a particularly large role in the jurisprudence on at least election law cases more generally. So could you just explain for our listeners what is deference and how it is that it influenced courts' decisions on voting rights? Yeah, deference has been a key part of the voting rights jurisprudence. I think deference is is pretty straightforward. It's whether the court should allow a law to stand in the face of a charter challenge if the violation of the charter right isn't clear and obvious. So if it's a close call, then parliament will should stand rather than the court striking something down under section using section three. Deference has been a feature of all the right to vote cases uh, especially in Sove and Frank. And, and Sove was an interesting case because uh, Justice Gonchay in dissent says this is about competing social and political philosophies. And they had expert evidence in the case by political philosophers saying, well, there is no consensus in liberal political philosophy. We look at Rousseau, we look at Mill, uh, we look at more contemporary thinkers, but there's no consensus on whether the incarcerated should be permitted or prohibited from voting. Therefore, Justice Gonchay concludes this is a matter of great and high-minded principled debate. We should therefore defer to Parliament, to which the majority says the text of the Charter is what we are interpreting, and the text says every citizen has the right to vote, and the government has to have a reason for depriving that group uh, of the right, and deference is not appropriate. So deference has mattered in every case, and on, on the one side, you have the view that Parliament knows about elections and about politics, and therefore, deference might be appropriate. But we also have this long history of Parliament using its authority pre and post charter 
to restrict the right to vote for reasons that uh, I would consider unacceptable, right? Racism, stereotyping, partisan advantage is also there, whether members of the military uh, had the right to vote or not when they were overseas, partly they were enfranchised or not based on whether the government of the day thought those groups would vote uh, for one party or another. So the idea that parliament deserves deference in establishing who has the right to vote when this, the charter itself says every citizen, I think, is a is a dubious claim and, and more stringent justification is appropriate. Where we end up in Frank is the majority acknowledges deference could be appropriate if we have a complex legislative scheme. The Elections Act is a pretty complex legislative scheme as a whole, and most of its subparts are as well. So I'm not sure that will hold up under scrutiny or, or, or hold up in, in future cases. But that's where we are now, and deference is always going to be a key part of the, the debate about how we interpret Section 3. So in addition to the substantive democratic rights in Section 3, the Supreme Court of Canada famously spoke of the unwritten principle of democracy in the succession reference. You've written on this topic before, so can you tell us what is the difference between the two and what does the unwritten principle of democracy really mean, especially in light of the court's recent decision in the Toronto and Ontario case in 2021? Very interesting question. Unwritten principle of democracy, one of the four unwritten principles the Supreme Court set out in the secession reference. It's also mentioned in other cases, especially that involve parliamentary sovereignty or supremacy. But I would say prior to City of Toronto, the actual content of the unwritten principle of democracy was not very well set out in the case law or in the scholarship. To draw a contrast with the rule of law as an unwritten principle or federalism, uh, where there was much more elaboration in the case law and and what academics and lawyers were, were writing about it. The way I understand the unwritten principle of democracy is it is, uh, at the very least, an interpretive aid that helps us read the Constitution of Canada in a democratic light as a whole, and it helps us in interpreting a specific provisions. The Supreme Court majority in the city of Toronto says, I think in conflict with the earlier case law, although they disagree, that unwritten principles cannot be used to invalidate legislation. I think that would be an extreme scenario, but the unwritten principle of democracy is valuable partly because uh, much of our constitution comes from, say, less democratic times where citizen expectations and the structure of democracy were simply different, especially thinking of 1867. And then even 1982, kind of recent constitutional moment for Canada, but the charter is quite out of date already in terms of how it protects democracy. If you want to look at more recent constitutions around the world, they tend to have much more granular protection for how the electoral system works, not just the right to vote, but those background factors we mentioned that, that make that right meaningful. Joining a political party, being registered to vote, a, a right to a free and fair election as a whole, a right to nonpartisan election administration. You'd be committing constitutional drafting malpractice if you didn't include some of those things in the Constitution of Canada, if you were drafting it in 2022. So the, so the charter is out of date. The 1867 Constitution is in some ways out of date, not to negate the democratic credentials of Canada, but the unwritten principle helps us infuse some of the general language and some of the provisions that were there from an earlier time with the requirement that Canada is a democracy. So I, the only other thing I would add is, is the majority in the city of Toronto says the unwritten principles, including the unwritten principle of democracy, can't be used to, to strike down legislation, but it also declined to do what I think it should have, which is use the unwritten principle to interpret the, the freedom that was at issue in the case, which was Section 2B, freedom of political expression. Instead, it has a, 
an elaborate and I think not very convincing uh, application of the Bayer test for a claimant seeking access to a statutory platform. I think it should have used the unwritten principle of democracy to say, sure, Section 3, the right to vote, where we protect fair electoral districts, doesn't apply to municipal elections. But even if we accept that, there's nothing in the text of the Charter that says fair electoral boundaries shouldn't also apply to municipal elections. Clear that Section 2B and Section 15 apply to municipal elections. The unwritten principle, I think, underlies all the provisions of the Charter and should have compelled the court, in my view, to, to find that unfair electoral districts breach Section 2B for, muni- for municipal districts. So I think there is a lot that the, the principle does, but there's even more that it could do if we were very seriously committed to reading all provisions of the Charter in a democratic light. And just to remind our our listeners about what the City of Toronto case was about, the provincial government that came into power under Doug Ford changed the boundaries and the number of councillors that could be voted in in the City of Toronto election right in the middle of the election itself. So people had already started, they had already been campaigning, and then the legislation changed it. And unfortunately, what, what we've seen with Section 3, and it may go back to your earlier comment about the charter being out of date is that it doesn't include a right to vote in municipal elections, which I think people would find surprising some of the arguments that were put forward by the government that the provincial government could take away completely the right to vote in a municipal election, that it's entirely within their power. So it was a federalism argument, and that's within the power of the provinces to decide on municipalities. So the arguments were this combination of the principle of democracy as well as the expressive rights under Section 2B. And they were unsuccessful at the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, The Asper Centre intervened in that case as well, (laughs) unsuccessfully. But taking from what you said earlier, it's a a bit of a shocking result um, to have a government step into the middle of an election and change the rules. We researched it looking around the world and couldn't find one single international example of where that had happened. In all of the democracies around the world, we did not see something like that dramatic happen. And there's been lots of dramatic things happened in elections. So that was the city of Toronto case. Municipal elections are a a different category, but how do we sort of view them and view those other aspects of the right to vote that you've talked about, about fair elections and boundaries and those sorts of things in light of that decision? Right. So to my knowledge, at the very least, this mid-election change in the number of wards and their boundaries, that had never happened in Canada. So it was an extraordinary event and quite unusual. The unwritten principles maybe come into play more often when it's an unusual or extraordinary circumstance. And what we have is one case, the Saskatchewan Boundaries Reference, which says for federal and provincial elections, we have to have something like one person, one vote, although there's there's some problems with the doctrine, and I've criticized it lots, but it says we have effective representation under Section 3. Because we have effective representation under Section 3, which applies to federal and provincial districts, I am still mystified why... That means we shouldn't also have fair electoral districts for municipal elections. Uh, municipalities are creatures of the provinces constitutionally as a matter of the division of powers. But the court could have reached a very different result in the city of Toronto and said the mid-election interference violated Section 2B without touching anything uh, about the province's power jurisdictionally under the division of powers over municipal governance. And, and Toronto is larger than some provinces, right? So what, what happened there is very consequential, but it's beyond dispute that Section 15 and Section 2B apply to municipal elections. There's lots of cases that have applied them already, and it was simply that the majority of the court objected to the same content 
on protecting effective representation, that there was one case from the Supreme Court applying it to Section 3, that that meant it couldn't also have the same content under Section 2B, and that overlap between rights and freedoms beyond some minimal amount was evidence of an attempt to get around the text of the Charter, which didn't include municipalities under the protection of Section 3. I think if we read the whole Charter in light of the unwritten principle of democracy, there's no reason to think that electoral boundaries could be unfair for municipal districts. They should be fair for the same reasons that they are for federal and provincial. Section 3 and Section 2B don't mention electoral districts at all, right? So these are all things judges are reading in. And because they happen to have one case protecting federal and provincial districts, very unpersuaded that that means you can't also protect municipal districts using a different provision of the Charter. So I want to switch topics now a little bit. We discussed earlier that many groups of people gained the right to vote over the past century, but there still remains a significant group of Canadian citizens who are unable to vote. And we alluded to that earlier, that youth under the age of 18. The constitutionality of that restriction was challenged in a case called Fitzgerald in Alberta in terms of the Alberta legislation in 2004. And it was denied leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. It was stopped at the Alberta Court of Appeal. What does in your view, the procedural history of other voting rights cases, for example, Sauve and Frank, suggest about the court's thinking on Section 3? And do you think it is rigid and difficult to change or more unpredictable and fluid? So, so I'll talk about the doctrine first and then um, maybe say something about where the current court uh, is uh, at the moment, because there's been some changes uh, recently in some big cases that I think reveal some of their thinking. So I read Sauve Uh, and Frank and those other cases on judges and mental capacity as saying any attempt to deprive a group of citizens as a group, as a category, uh, any attempt to deprive a group of citizens their right to vote will immediately be suspect and will have a very hard hill to climb in order to justify the exclusion. And there has to be a convincing record of why the exclusion exists, has to be a theoretical justification and there has to be something beyond the vague sense by some parliamentarians that the group is unworthy. I think in Sauvé and Frank, the idea that a group is unworthy of voting is, uh, has been totally rejected by the court as a legitimate rationale. We also have seen from the cases that the idea that there are internal limits to Section 3 has been rejected by the Supreme Court. So the argument that age is an internal limit, I think, would uh, be very likely to lose. So in other words, it will end up being a case about Section 1, in my view. And then the Sauve restriction against the claim to be pressing a substantial but are vague and symbolic, I think will be especially relevant. I do think a lot of the case, love to hear your views on it, but I think a lot of the case will come down to minimal impairment. If there is a concession that some age limit is appropriate, we don't think babies and toddlers have the capacity, then is there a range of reasonable alternatives to which the court will grant parliament deference as long as it's within the reasonable range? And that, you know, so setting a higher age limit, right? If you want to go think through that thought scenario, right, that that probably seems unreasonable. I run through this with my students. What if the parliament tried to set an upper age limit, right, on the right to vote? I think we most people's instinct would be, well, that wouldn't fly. Uh, looks like it's stereotyping senior citizens. And so if we can't, probably couldn't have an upper age limit and we can't have restrictions on prisoners and non-resident citizens, the door is quite open on age, but that minimal impairment analysis of what the range of reasonable alternatives is 
will, I think, be uh, quite significant. And the dissent in Frank talks about uh, age and in a way that means there's at least a couple votes likely against claimants uh, in the age uh, case. We'll see what the other um, members of the court have to say. But part of the age case, which I think is really relevant, is about capacity. And for very good reasons, for, say that first, for very good reasons, we don't have literacy tests and we don't have tests of political knowledge for adult citizens, right? We assume that people are the best judges of their own interest and will vote accordingly. And we don't actually ask what reasons people base their vote on. They could be, you or I might think are good reasons or not as good reasons, but that's up to the individual to decide. And so uh, it looks pretty paternalistic to tell a, a, an informed, intelligent 14 or 16-year-old that they can't cast a vote when we know that there are some adults who are probably casting votes on for reasons that we think are less persuasive or have less political knowledge or whatever the case may be. So we, I'm not, we should not have tests for adults, but the fact that we don't inquire too much into capacity, the adult voters, I think, weighs, uh, that, that's one of the factors that pushes in favor of the claimant's in the age case who, who, who feel strongly about their right to cast a ballot and would make an informed decision about whom they would vote for. Well, and there's some interesting positions that have been taken by child rights advocates that there shouldn't be an age because, in fact, the willingness to vote and the interest in voting is, should be the only qualification. So at the upper age category, you might have people who aren't competent for various reasons dealing with the the decline of the human mind and, and body. People who don't understand what's going on are not going to vote because they're, they're not going to get themselves to the, to the voting station. And the same would happen for two and three-year-olds. They're just not going to go there to vote. Um, they're not going to have an interest or an understanding. So that may open it up to 10-year-olds, for example, voting. And I know that that probably would shock people who are used to discriminating against children and not seeing them as having their own views and wishes. We also have the hypocrisy to some extent of the major parties that have taken a position against lowering the voting age, who also who, who do allow membership in voting as young as 14 in their own parties. And we could say that's for cynical reasons, that they want to bring them into the fold. But I think it's fair to, to call that some level, a level of hypocrisy. Yeah. So I, I think the voting age is too high. You know, uh, it, sh it should be lowered. It's worked fine for the parties internally to have 14 and 16-year-olds be able to cast ballots in leadership races and donate uh, to the parties and so on. Absolutely fine. That's point number one. Point number two, the, the arguments against any group being allowed to vote are always the same, right? They're not actually able to really understand what it's about, okay? That's often raised. Or, and this is relevant to younger voters, they will be coerced right, by someone, a parent or someone, or teacher or someone influential to vote in the way that that uh, adult, in the way the way that adult wants them to vote. Those are very similar arguments used against racialized minorities, that they'll be told by the religious leaders how to vote against religious groups, uh, against women, right? So there's a long history of those ideas being used in very unpleasant ways. And so I think it'll be a struggle for the government to come up with more reputable reasons for why 16-year-olds uh, and I think 14-year-olds as well should not be able to cast a ballot. And so we've also seen, I think, in Canada, um, some really troubling numbers about voter turnout, 
right? And young voters have a very long stake in the future of the country, right? They're going to, by definition, on average, are likely to live longer than than older uh, citizens. And if we get them voting early, I think the political science data is pretty good on the fact that if they vote in their first election, they're more likely to stay, be engaged and stay engaged. And so uh, we risk uh, having even worse voter turnout, which harms the legitimacy of our institutions uh, in the future without taking some active uh, measures to try to promote turnout and granting the vote to younger people, having more civic education, allowing them to get involved in parties. Those are all good things from the point of view of a, of a healthy democracy. And we do have some really interesting examples from around the world. So we see in Scotland, for example, where they lowered the vote to 16 for the referendum for independence and then kept it lower for the the local elections and found some consistency in terms of voter turnout. That's also consistent with some of the data we have in Canada about younger, like people 18, but in that 18 to 25 age group that you've talked about, where if they vote once, they're more likely to vote again. Yeah. And it's worth saying, you know, where we've been talking about voting as a right of the individual, but it also generates incentives in the political system. So if 14, uh, 15, 16 and 17 year olds can vote, the parties and the candidates have incentive to take their issues more into account than they currently do. And so uh, we actually get more, we're more likely to get responsive and and productive politics if um, their interests are taken into account. So we'll see what happens as we have the the Asper Centre and Justice for Children and Youth are representing a group of young people. We're going to be talking to some of them in the second part of our our podcast. But just to sort of close out, are there any other gaps or issues that exist that you wish to highlight for our listeners with respect to the application of Section 3 and its relationship with electoral law in Canada at large? Yeah, so there's two things I would I would add on to our conversation. One is about electoral boundaries. So there are 10 commi- federal commissions currently working on redesigning electoral districts for federal elections. We have one single case on federal provincial electoral boundaries at the Supreme Court. That's the Saskatchewan boundaries case I mentioned earlier that says we have a right to effective representation. Uh, that sounds pretty good, but the court actually never found that we have a right to nonpartisan independent commission. So they exist, but didn't find that was a constitutional requirement. And the court also did not require strict representation by population or voter equality, where you have close to the same number of people uh, in every district, you know, with the, the notable and important exception of uh, far north and remote uh, districts where the geography is, is just simply too large. So, but the, the one case from 1991 allows much bigger deviations from basic voter equality than would be allowed in the United States, for example, or the United Kingdom or New Zealand or Germany, other comparable democracies. So that that's an important part of Section 3 um, that I think we should address. The other one goes back to that uh, comment I made on, on Section 3 and how the notwithstanding clause does not apply to Section 3. So I think the natural incentive structure, uh, if Section 33 applies to freedom of political expression, freedom of association, quality rights, which may be relevant for municipal elections, but not to the right to vote, is any case of democratic rights, uh, the claimants are going to try to push it within the box of Section 3. So that even if they win at court, the, the government can't simply use the notwithstanding clause as they could in Section 2B. And we've seen the notwithstanding clause be used in relation to political rights um, recently. So I think that's a big 
factor. How is a charter going to be interpreted given the push to fit everything within the Section 3 box, given that it's exempt from Section 33? That'll have an effect for how all the democratic rights uh, provisions are interpreted. So it'll be interesting to see how the, the cases develop uh, in those areas. So just a, a final question. Can you let our listeners know what you are currently working on? Yeah, I'm working on a book on election commissions around the world and generally how democracies have tried to protect themselves post-World War II. So it's kind of a big comparative uh, look at democracy around the world. Uh, I've got a piece I've been working on for a while on the notwithstanding clause that I hope uh, people will look out for and read. And then uh, there's lots going on around democracy and new technologies, social media, how online politics is conducted. So I'm doing a lot in that area as well. Thank you for asking. It's a challenging area and lots of interesting things to work on. So we've been speaking with uh, Professor Mike Powell of the University of Ottawa about the right to vote in Section 3 of the Charter. Thank you very much, Mike. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Welcome back. As some of our listeners might know, the Asper Centre and Justice for Children and Youth are supporting 13 youth applicants aged between 13 and 18 in challenging the constitutionality of the final remaining restriction on the right to vote, that is the age restriction. The applicants argue that the minimum age requirement in the Canada Elections Act unconstitutionally violates the rights of young Canadians on the basis that it violates their rights under sections three and 15 of the charter, the right of all citizens to vote and the right to equality. Next up in our practice corner, we will hear from three of the youth applicants involved in the challenge to the federal voting age. They will be speaking with Catherine Mullins, a JD student at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law, who worked on the voting age challenge as a summer research assistant with the Asper Centre. So over to you, Catherine. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to talk to some of our applicants today and hear more about why they decided to get involved with the voting age challenge. First, I'm going to introduce them, beginning with Diego Christensen Barker. Diego is 18 years old and comes from Campbell River, British Columbia. He is passionate about influencing policies on climate change and education that affect him now and in the future. Diego was the chair of the British Columbia Youth Council and has held leadership roles at the organization Vote 16. Next is Katie Yu. Katie is 16 and from Iqaluit, Nunavut, and is committed to raising awareness on climate change, mental health, suicide prevention, racial justice, and how these issues impact the North in particular. She worked as a summer intern at the World Wildlife Fund Canada and participated in UNICEF Canada's Youth Advocacy Program. Last but not least is Khadija Dairo. Khadija is 15 years old and lives in Fort McMurray, Alberta. She is also part of UNICEF's Youth Advocacy Program and she is passionate about religious minorities' rights and representation in government. So welcome everyone. It's really nice to have you here. And first, can you tell our listeners what initially made you interested in getting involved in the case? Maybe we can start with Katie. Sure. So yeah, I heard about this case initially through UNICEF. Yeah, as you mentioned in my bio, I was part of their youth advocacy program last year. So yeah, I heard about it in, yeah, kind of around springtime, approaching summer. I thought it was a really cool opportunity to be able to join this challenge and be part of such a huge change or what could potentially be such a huge change, and also meet like-minded youth. And yeah, it was just pretty easy to get involved. Yeah, we went to an information session and confirmed that we were interested. And yeah, I was lucky to have that connection through UNICEF. And yeah, they reached out to me, asked if I was interested. So 
just grateful to to them for that opportunity. And then I guess another thing is that there are also a group of students at my school who worked on a project on why the federal voting age should be lowered to 16 um, earlier in the year. And they were able to present the project to a group of senators and RMP at the time. Um, and that was organized through a through their, their social studies class. And so, yeah, I was really interested in what they did. And I thought it was a really important change to push for. So, yeah, when I got the opportunity to join the challenge through UNICEF, yeah, I was definitely interested and basically became part of the challenge. That's great. Khadija, was it the same for you also being involved in the UNICEF program? Mm -hmm. It was the same as KDU answered. I was involved with UNICEF and that's what got me on the voting age challenge. Turning to Diego now. Thank you, Katie. Yeah, so I had been involved with Vote 16 at the provincial level for a few years when I heard about this case. And at this point, what really keeps me interested in passionate about this challenge is is youth voice and giving youth more of a voice uh, and ensuring that those voices are heard that was part of the thing that kept me going at the at the bc youth council and it's kind of been a theme for most of my activism work so far great so my next question is in general what is it that makes you all want to vote are there specific issues that you feel strongly about or is it more of a general desire to have your voice heard Maybe we can start with Katie again. So I think the great thing about pushing for the right to vote is that it's, you know, not necessarily just about one issue. It could be about many issues that youth care about. So personally, I am passionate about climate change and mental health support specifically. And I think there are many ways that youth can get involved in taking action on these issues, such as volunteering, going to protests, etc. But I do think that voting would be a very concrete way of taking action. You know, it's important that we have the same issues that affect us, as we'll be affected by these issues in the long term. And we also have different perspectives to bring to the table on these issues than adults do. So yeah, a lot of the issues we're passionate about also require big systemic changes, and it's easier to push for that when you have more of a direct say in government. You know, we can influence current voters, but I think it's more important that we can speak for ourselves and vote for ourselves in the end. So yeah, that's why I believe that the voting age should be lowered. And Diego, how about you? Yeah, I'll keep my answer short for this one because I am 18 now, so I'm not restricted by the voting age anymore. However, the reason I want to stay involved with this, and like I said in my, my last answer, is ensuring that youth voices are heard. So part of this challenge is getting youth voices to be more spoken, um, but it's ensuring that politicians hear youth voices because often, you know, I've experienced this personally or, or, or other uh, activists that I've, I've worked with where politicians will... Say say they're listening to us, but really not take action because there's no there's no real consequences for them. They're, we're not a voter. Youth aren't another vote for them. So there is less incentive for them to respect and implement the youth ideas over their adult counterparts because of the vote. Um, so that's sort of what's keeping me interested and yeah, the main thing for this for this challenge. And Khadija, what would you say makes you want to vote? I just want to vote to like get politicians to hold more importance to youth-related topics and issues I feel strongly about is climate change and immigrant policies. And especially now, post-COVID, definitely mental health has been a general struggle. So that has been an important 
um, issue to my heart. And it's critical that mental health services do have youth involvement. And it's both the desire and also um, the will to be participated more in my community. Um, as a religious minority, it's important for me to be represented in my community, country, and school. And voting could give me the ability to participate and add to my community. Great. So my next question is, are there any obstacles that you've faced in being involved in a case like this? I guess I've learned that people can have a lot of opinions and sometimes be resistant to change. You know, we've done a lot of media interviews and, you know, speaking to the public about the case, especially when we first launched it about a year ago now, which is kind of crazy. But <laughs> so yeah, people can definitely be resistant to change, I feel like. And, you know, with our interviews, there have been some negative comments. So I guess that would be one of the challenges. But I think the thing that's made a lot of the difference is having support from other young people and knowing that, you know, not all youth, but many youth that I've spoken to also support the change to lower the voting age and the federal voting age. So that's really been great and kind of keeping up our motivation to make this change. Yeah, it's definitely important to have support whenever you're advocating for something, and especially when it's at such a big scale. And yeah, when we first launched the case, I also remember feeling like a little bit overwhelmed by all of the media attention, especially because like there were some of the first media interviews I ever did. But yeah, it was kind of intimidating to put yourself out there, especially because of the scale it's at, as I said. Um, but yeah, I've definitely gotten a lot more experienced and yeah, it's good to kind of have the support and, you know, the other litigants to kind of help keep that motivation up and always good to have other people around you supporting the change that you're making. So, yeah. <laughs> and Diego, what obstacles have you faced? I'd say the biggest obstacle that I have faced uh, and other activists within the Vote 16 BC have faced is politicians, specifically BC NDP and John Horgan, not following through on what they say or giving us false answers. So basic example of this is we would go to them and we say, hey, we want to lower the voting age 16. What do you guys need to see happen in order for this to happen? And they'd say, well, we need to see more support. So we went and, we went and did that. We, we got the, like I personally helped obtain the BC Federation of Labor's endorsement for the lowering the voting age. We also have the BC NDP as a party, they have endorsed lowering the voting age to 16. However, we still go to them. They're still very, very resistant to to make this change. So you know, that's, that's very strange and uh, very frustrating because it's not clear what we need to do in order for that to become a reality in BC. So I'd say that's the biggest obstacle I've, I've faced. And Khadija? The same as the others had said, some obstacles I have faced is the criticism with people about their opinions. It definitely has been hard to put myself out there and hear the criticism. It kind of makes you question about what you're doing, but seeing also the other support of it, it also like reaffirms like what I'm doing is right. And it's been really motivating for me to continue to do the voting age case. So it's great to hear that you got something positive from the experience too. And that's Sort of where my next question is going, I'm wondering what has your involvement with the Voting Age Challenge taught you either about the law or just in general? So I think by being part of this challenge, I think I've learned a lot about 
my rights in general, since the challenge is based on the charter. You know, we learned about the charter last year in grade 10 social studies. Um, but I think being part of the uh, case has really reinforced my rights, you know, such as right to equality, right to express your opinions and etc. So yeah, I've really learned to kind of stand up for my rights and hopefully gain the right to vote. And yeah, I think I've also learned a lot about, um, you know, more of the legal system and all the things you need to do in order to be part of a case like this. Um, and I guess, yeah, my rights as a litigant as well. Yeah, there have been a lot of, you know, little things we've all had to do in order to kind of be litigants. So yeah, affidavits, for example, we did a lot of that or background work last year when we were just beginning. So yeah, it's really interesting to kind of see everything that goes into a case like this. And then I guess the other major thing is that changing the law can be really difficult and that it takes a long time. See, I mentioned some of the criticism and people being resistant to change, which is, you know, kind of natural part of human psychology, I guess, but still definitely challenging. And then, yeah, so that change can take a while. You know, when we first launched the case, it was really busy with media interviews and meetings and things like that. Um, and yeah, we've had some other opportunities since then, but it has been a lot of background work, um, which hasn't been, t- you know, challenging, just a lot of waiting, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely still exciting. Um, and yeah, especially now that it's been almost a year since we launched the case. So yeah, I still definitely feel a lot of that motivation. And it's also kind of cool to be part of a long-term initiative because it's kind of a big part of my life now in a way, or it will be like looking back yeah, I think those are some of the things I've learned. It's funny, as you were saying that, I was thinking it was also my first time seeing things like affidavits <laughs> and learning about the legal process this past summer when I was working on this as a law student. So it's funny to think that we're both uh, learning at the same time as we go here. <laughs> and Diego, how about you? Yeah, yeah political and, and, and legal changes take a long time, a very long time, frustratingly long time, <laughs> especially when you're doing grassroots related, like, you know, a grassroots type strategy. Um, when you're working from the bottom, change happens. It just takes a long time because you have to get the people in the top to make the change, unfortunately. And just finding out, you know, a lot of politicians are, are scared to make radical changes and take big steps, even if, you know, like, like in BC, we have the support of their party. We have the support of one of their largest voting blocks but they're still afraid to make change. So just th- this case and just, just uh, like my experience in activists in general, activism in general over the past couple of years has just taught me that this type of change takes a long time. And so you got to be in it for the long haul and, you know, have a plan to, uh, to make the change. And Khadija, how about you? My involvement in the Voting Age Challenge taught me about how long the law process is um, from the first reading to the House of Commons to the Senate. It also taught me the reality of the whole process of how legislation gets accepted in Canada. And it also taught me more about my rights in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Seems like the long process is a common theme, but it's great that you all have you know, gotten exposure to the law so early because it's it's taken me until I'm in law school to learn that. So Cool that you all got a law school 101 lesson, even if it's a a long one. And I think it's so amazing that you all have the courage and the eagerness to fight for change in such a real way. Is there anyone, whether it's someone in your personal lives or a public figure who inspires you to be an activist, or are there any projects in particular that have inspired you that you'd like to highlight for our listeners? 
Yeah, I think there are many people who inspire me. You know, I don't just want to throw out a couple of names when there are so many young people fighting for change every day alongside me and in other parts of the country and the world. Yeah, I will give a few examples just to explain more. So I've done some mental health advocacy with a group in my school, so they all inspire me. You know, one of our initiatives was creating kind of a peer support group in our school, so kind of making support more relevant, more accessible for students. So yeah, that's one thing I'm kind of more directly involved in. And I guess many of the other litigants in the case have also inspired me through the initiatives um, that they've led in their communities. You know, I've gotten to know the others a little bit. Yeah, and we'll get to know them more, hopefully. And I guess another more specific example is um, in 2019, there are a group of 15 youth who filed a lawsuit against the Canadian government for basically their failure to act on climate change. So yeah, they were also kind of speaking up for their right to life, liberty, and security. And yeah, that was also at such a big scale. So I think that really inspires me to carry on with this case. Yeah, being passionate about climate change, you know, there are many of the, many climate activists who have inspired me. Um, you know, Laura McDonald from Scotland is one, Autumn Peltier in Canada. Um, so yeah, there are some of those, you know, kind of bigger names, but I think, yeah, there are a lot of people who do inspire me. And Diego? If I had to say one person just who kind of got me involved with active in the first place, I would say it's my friend uh, Lachman Wong. Just when I was probably, it was probably grade nine or so, uh, when I decided that, you know, I wanted to get more involved with, with community and, and kind of politics and, and see what it's all about. And uh, I was in cadets at the time. And um, she was just one of the person that connected me with the BC Youth Council. And, and through that, I uh, found the vote 16 and, and through that found this challenge. You know, I really uh, attribute a lot of um, my success and just being involved with 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 Youth Voice um, to to her. And you know, just thank thank her for for getting me involved with everything. So. Okay, and my last question: If there was one thing that you wish people could know or better understand about your generation, what would it be? So I think my one thing would be that we as youth are very informed of the issues that face our world and our country and our communities today. You know, it is kind of hard to avoid the news these days and the issues that, you know, are in the news because of things like the internet, to some degree, social media. And many of these issues are already affecting us and they will continue to affect us into the future for the long term. You know, which is why I think it's important for us to vote because we cannot really wait until we're adults to take concrete action. And in many cases, you know, like with climate change, for example, we can't afford to wait. And, you know, we understand the urgency of some of these issues. So I think it's important that we get to act now while we're still youth. Yeah, I think bouncing off what Katie just said there, I think the thing about our generation is that there's no sheltering anymore. It's you know, often, often when you talk about this this case to people and they're resistant to it, they'll talk about, oh, when I was six, I was doing X, Y, and Z. I wouldn't want myself at 16 to be able to vote. But it was very, very different times, just even simply in just a sense of like how globalized and issue aware our generation is because it is everywhere. Uh, we're, we're on our phones quite often for better or worse. And one of the effects of that is just being hyper aware of issues that are happening in the world issues that are happening in, in, in Canada. So, you know, in that sense, I think that youth today are more mature than, than they've ever been. And I think that's something that needs to be understood about our generation or my generation. 
That's really interesting. I'd never thought of the idea of, you know, social media and phone use that way, but it, it really does put a positive spin on it. And I think it's very true for my generation too. And Khadijit, is there anything you want to add? One thing I wish people would understand is that the youth today, we're very diversified. We are introverts, we're extroverts, but we all are dreamers. We definitely have dreams of what we want Canada to be, and we should be given the chance to make our dream a reality. Youth are definitely a force to be reckoned with, and we are the future generation which are going to be living through the choices of today's generation. So I think we should be given a chance to make sure that we see the future that we want. Okay, well, thank you so much, Diego, Katie, and Khadija. It's been so interesting and inspiring to learn more about your involvement with the Voting Age Challenge. And I'm looking forward to following along as the case progresses, even if it does so slowly. <laughs> yeah, thanks for talking to us. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Katie, for stepping in as a host. It's been a delight to listen to all of you. Thanks for joining us for this very special episode about the right to vote. We will share links to all of the cases we discussed throughout the episode in the show notes. If you're interested in following the outcome of the Voting Age Challenge, make sure to check the Asper Center's website or social media sites periodically because we will be sharing updates as they come up. Thank you again to Professor Michael Powell for setting the stage for us about the right to vote. And thanks to KDU, Diego Christensen Barker and Khadija Darrow for telling us about their ideas and stories behind what motivated them to take part in the Voting Age Challenge. Of course, thanks again to Katie for stepping in as our guest host. Charter, of course, is proudly sponsored by U of T Affinity partner TD Insurance. You can find out more about Affinity products at affinity.utoronto.ca. So this is our last official episode of season two. Stay tuned for some bonus content later on in the season. Until then, have a wonderful new year. Charter course, I will charter course. If we could just get the country to trust us. Charter course, south, east, west, and north. And along the way, we may find justice. Charter course, I will charter course. We can just get the country to trust us. Charter a course, southeast, west, and north. Along the way, we may find justice.